Hello and welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White. We're recording this episode on Monday, October 19th. The Senate Judiciary Committee has concluded its hearings on the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. And my question for my friend and co-host Richard Epstein is, Richard, will Amy be confirmed? Yes, on a straight party line vote, I suspect that that means 53-47. That's what it will be. What was your sense of, uh, of the hearings? Uh, a lot was discussed, um, and there will surely be more discussion to come in the full Senate. But what, what was your sense of it all? Well, I, I think this entire thing was a kabuki play already preordained. Uh, the base question was whether or not the Democrats could trap her in some kind of a blunder, which might shake through a boat or two, or whether or not the Democrats were so overreact that they might cost themselves serious ground in the election. I think what happened is the Democrats had a kind of a sneeringly respectful attitude towards it, didn't believe a thing that she said, regarded this as all a giant charade, but never overstepped the limits of respectability in the way in which they put the question. She was like an automaton and machine. She never used a note. She never hesitated. Uh, the kinds of materials that they asked her was stuff was right up her alley, so she belted it out of the court. And the one thing that will possibly come back to haunt her, though I do not think it will matter very much, is the number of times she said, well, I can't talk about that because it's going to be related to sort of future activity. I think that's absolutely appropriate with respect to abortion. I think it's absolutely appropriate with respect to climate change. Uh, she even went so far as to deal with uh, Griswold against Connecticut saying, well, I won't want to talk about that one either, although that's so far off the radar screen from current litigation, one wonders whether or not she might want to say, well, I don't know whether it was right at the onset, but certainly I don't want to deal with it. That gets us into what I think is the very interesting question of what counts as a super precedent. Uh, would Griswold count? The one that I thought of last night would be something like loving against um, uh, Virginia. I think that case has gone so far that if somebody wanted to announce that we were going to essentially allow uh, segregation in marriages imposed by the state, that there would be something of an uproar. I think she was right about Roe v. Wade. So she did not make any clear blunders. They didn't make any clear blunders. So the needle is where it started. And I think she will be confirmed on a straight party line. And then people will argue afterwards ad infinitum over the very simple question, should the Republicans have gone forward with this nomination so close to the election? And you? Well, I think she'll be confirmed as well before the election, probably by a strict party line vote unless uh, Senator Collins peels off and, and votes against. And if there's enough vote, votes to confirm, she might get a, a pass from Majority Leader McConnell. To, to Well, the question, does she want to yeah. pass at this point? Yeah, well, that, that's um, true, too. I, obviously, um, with a, you know, do you think well, so with, with a sitting judge, I mean, with any nominee, there's this question of how far can you go to prejudge issues, right? When it was Solicitor General Elena Kagan uh, being nominated to the Supreme Court. She wasn't yet a judge, but she was aspiring to be a judge. And it, it, it's you know an interesting question about how far she could go to answer questions. But for somebody who's already a sitting judge, like Judge Barrett on the Seventh Circuit, it seems to me that, that they have the utmost duty to not prejudge issues which plausibly could come before the court. Uh, but I, that's it raises an interesting question, doesn't it? We want that we, we have a constitutional system that produces a non-political court through a political process, but the senators have to have some job in all of this. And obviously there's the there's just the basic job of screening out nominees who are picked simply because of family connections or personal relationships and so on. But does the Senate really not have any duty beyond that to, to, to look through and question the nominees on substantive issues? What's, what's your thought on that? 
Well, I don't think the questioning is so important. I would put it exactly the opposite way. She has a pretty impressive body of work in the last three years. She's a very industrious woman. And I think that they're free to examine that stuff. I don't think it's necessarily that they ought to be free to question her about it, uh, which is what they want to do. I think her attitude was it was one and done. She'll comment on it. If it's one and more to come, then she would have to be a bit more circumspect, which I think is right. Um, interestingly enough, uh, as best I can tell, uh, there were four days of hearings, and she was dominating three of them. So there was very little other people coming in and speaking and commenting on what she had done. Very little grandstanding, as I recall. In fact, I didn't watch any of the things that happened afterwards. Uh, but I think it's appropriate for the Senate to do whatever they want. Remember, I would also add that this is a free vote. Um, if you decide that you want to vote against her, you don't have to give a reason. You just say no. If you want to play the game politically, you better give a reason, or otherwise people might think of you as arbitrary and capricious. Uh, so I don't think having the nominee there, given the fact that she's so bound, is particularly important. I think the record is fair game, and my attitude has always been you may vote against a nominee for the Supreme Court or any other court for good reason, bad reason, and no reason at all. But what you're not allowed to do is engage in wholesale defamation. I think the Democrats learned that lesson after the Kavanaugh, what I regarded as fiasco and debacle, and so they stayed well on the right side of the line. So this was an icily cordial hearing, uh, which did not produce any changes in sentiment. If you ask me about how this would play out in the larger political market, I think she made a sufficiently powerful personal impression uh, that it may well be something that will move people slightly to the Republican side, particularly those uh, mythical or real, as it probably is, uh, suburban women who are said to be kind of deserting Trump this time around. I think I don't think you could say that she solidified uh, Trump's position with these parties, but I certainly think that you could say that she helped. It was such a staggering contrast from the Kavanaugh hearings, and, and not just the explosive allegations against Kavanaugh after the original round of hearings. I think so much of our memory of the Kavanaugh hearings is skewed by the, the Ford allegations, just like our, our memory of the Thomas hearings was skewed by the, the Hill the, the Hill allegations. In Kavanaugh's hearings, long before Dr. Ford's allegations were, were brought brought into public, there were protests surrounding the Kavanaugh process from start to finish. I remember quite, if you remember the, the, the protesters that were lined up outside the hearing room waiting their turn to come in and cause a scene. It was really remarkable that we didn't have any of that this time. And I wonder, is it just the fact that that uh, Judge Barrett, as a as a very poised uh, female nominee who had already been through the fire with her Seventh Circuit uh, hearing before Senator Feinstein, maybe people knew that 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 Judge Barrett wouldn't be rattled. Maybe the people who did those protests last time concluded that they just weren't effective, or maybe they're counterproductive. But for whatever reason, it wasn't just Senator Feinstein who played this. With, with kid gloves. In fact, so, so with such kid gloves that she was immediately denounced afterwards by Demand Justice and other other activists who now want her to be deposed from the, her perch on the, on the committee. But from start to finish, even the groups surrounding the process were much, much more muted in this one, even though it, by all appearances, the, the ideological change from Justice Ginsburg to Justice Barrett is much, much more than uh, the, the the move from Kennedy to, to Kavanaugh. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's another explanation. Uh, she comes from Notre Dame Law School, which is a very strong law school and has become, I think, systematically somewhat more conservative in the last four or five years. And so she had the complete backing of her faculty. Uh, you think about what the Yale Law School student body and what the Yale Law School faculty had done, and uh, the dean had sent out a tepid but perfectly decent note saying, congratulations on your great achievement, and she was denounced by a letter of several hundred students saying, how dare you take size on this with a man who is, and then you could fill in the blank with whatever nasty words you want to say. And so I think, in effect, what happened is there was a tinderbox very close to home, uh, which made it very easier to spread. And I could recall watching with utter amazement as, you know, the Yale students pressed to have their classes canceled so they could go down to Washington to protest. In the end, I think what happened is it didn't stop Kavanaugh, but I also think that it made them look like poor sports to the world at large, and it probably cost them some kind of influence and maybe even cost them the Senate come 2020. So I don't think it was in their interest to do so, and so I think it stopped it. And also, remember, much harder to bring lurid sexual allegations against Amy Barrett than it was against Brett Kavanaugh. And that, of course, is what fueled the upset. It was the same thing with Thomas. I mean, I felt that my life in the sun was rudely cut short. If you remember in the Thomas hearings, uh, uh, Judge Joe Biden took my book, Takings, took it out from under his nose, Michelle, put it under the nose of a somewhat astonished uh, Clarence Thomas, said, you believe anything in this book? God help us, right? Uh, and Thomas said, well, there is private property in the Constitution, which probably amazed Biden. Uh, uh, but then when Anita Hill came out, all that natural law, private property, property stuff just disappeared. And the allegations in that case were child's play compared to what they were in the, in the Kavanaugh hearing. And so I, I think what happens is sex plays in these things. That's one of the one of the only merciful things about the Bork hearing is, I don't know if you'll remember this, but they went to look to find out what he had taken out from the video store at that time. Right. And it was like a life with father and it was Cary Grant movies and so forth. So that killed that particular line of enterprise. Uh, but I do think in effect that the inability to have Yale and the inability to interject sex into this thing and the deep awareness that what you did essentially was counterproductive, uh, put the Democrats on good behavior. And I think it was extremely effective. I also think it's going to help them in another way if they want to go ahead with that you know, court packing plan, which I strongly oppose, they can now say, look, we were in very good behavior in this particular case, so you can't call us a bunch of dirty rabble. Uh, we are now going to exercise our constitutional prerogative to change the structure of the Supreme Court uh, because we thought, notwithstanding our decent behavior, you guys all did the wrong thing. Richard, you mentioned the Notre Dame faculty. I do want to just drop a footnote to this conversation for our listeners and just point out that the Notre Dame faculty over the, its buildup over the last couple of decades has really been incredible in terms of the law school. It it may well be pound for pound the best law school faculty in the country right now. Obviously, I'm very fond of of, of my colleagues at George Mason University, and I know that you're very fond of, of your own colleagues as well. But I think that Justice Barrett—I'm getting ahead of myself—Judge Barrett's, possibly Justice Barrett's appointment to the court, it reflects a lot of things. But one of the one in us in no small way, I think it really reflects the emergence of Notre Dame's law faculty as a really impressive group. Just a few months ago, I was talking to somebody who was applying to law schools, and she'd gotten into Chicago, and she'd gotten into to Notre Dame, and obviously there's the financial aid and everything. But I, I, I said with all honesty, really give the Notre Dame uh, offer a very, very strong look, especially for a, a conservative law student 
Uh, it's it's quite an impressive place. Sorry to to, to bag on your. I, I, sorry to to undercut your your institution, Richard, uh, or one of one of your institutions. But hey, I'm yeah. there on both sides. Uh, there are at least three of my my students on the Notre Dame faculty. I think Maria Mesa has joined us. She was one of my Roman law students. Sam Bray, I think I taught him in three classes, and Steve Yelderman was another one of my prized Roman law students. Um, what they have done is they've gone counter cyclical. They have basically looked for people center right of center. They get a much stronger pool out of that particular pool than if they tried to go with folks who are on the left side. Uh, they now have Marcus Cole, another friend. I mean, he was somebody I first met at the Institute for Humane Studies in one of these prep programs for getting people into legal teaching. He comes out of Stanford, but he's essentially a center-right guy. And I might say they've been enormously helpful to me. Uh, uh, next weekend, on the 30th and so forth, Notre Dame Law School and the Classical Liberal Institute at the University of, uh, at NYU University uh, NYU are going to be putting together a conference on valuation. Uh, they're going to publish it in their proceedings, and we're going to do it. So my view yeah. about them is this is not only a rival, this is also a compliment uh, in the sense, but I want to compliment them, and they're a compliment to us because uh, what happens is it, it's very easy to do business with, with the folks at Notre Dame, um, and they are willing to basically take a kind of a classical institute program and, and put it forward on what is an important but somewhat neglected topic. So I'm not surprise. But I think that, you know, if you're going to get unanimous support from your home faculty, and there's probably not a student there who would want to oppose it, it's going to be very difficult for somebody to come up. It was real easy to do that with Yale, where everybody was up in arms. I, I said to myself, well, am I glad that I'm in an alumnus of the Yale Law School seeing all this? And the answer I gave at the time was no. And the person for whom I had a lot of sympathy was Heather Gerken, who's basically a decent and able woman who's the dean of the law school, and she gets caught in this terrible kind of crossfire. And so I think that had a lot to do with what was going on. Fires have to start somewhere, and the home base is one of the best places. I think it was also mm -hmm. uh, Kavanaugh taught at Harvard, and I think there was a similar denunciation there. And so what you do is you see a guy whose legitimacy is tested by his own base, and it comes easy for this thing to spread into mushroom like it did. Now, one of the issues that arose consistently throughout the hearings was the Affordable Care Act, the individual mandate, pre-existing conditions. And the case that the Supreme Court is now due to hear in just a few weeks, it's Texas versus California. It's the second case that the Supreme Court will have heard that's focused on the individual mandate. You have written a Hoover Institution Defining Ideas column about this. It's out today, Monday, October 19th. Its title is Untangling the Obamacare Challenge. Uh, for, those, uh, for those of our listeners who haven't yet seen the column, Richard, what did you write? Well, essentially, I said I was a fierce opponent to the original statute on both constitutional and on practical grounds. Um, I thought the opinion was, in some sense, very weak and confused, uh, but that doesn't really matter very much. What matters is, I think, the case for trying to undo this particular mandate through uh, the kinds of processes that are going on in the court is and should be a dead loser. And while the Democrats were wondering and sweating aloud whether or not this thing uh, would survive or whether it would be struck down, I think the likely outcome is nine, nothing. Everybody from right to left on the court is saying that uh, the claim won't work, that is to strike it down. Uh, let me just start with a single thing. You have two statutes here. You have a 2017 statute about job cuts and so forth, or tax cuts and job act. And then you also have the earlier statute from 2010. In the second statute, it's pretty clear that they found that the mandate was not particularly essential to running the program. It had been ill-conceived from 
the beginning. So they struck it down to zero. At that point, somebody could say, okay, we just take the thing out because it's a farce. If you take the thing out because it's a farce, then you're left with the statute without the mandate. And so essentially what happens is they take the statute and they approve the mandate. At this point, there's a kind of an irony. All the objection uh, to the statute under the Commerce Clause rested under the proposition that Commerce only gave you the right to regulate a pre-existing condition, but it did not give you a right to force people to do particular kinds of actions, which I think is fair enough. I might add exactly that same objection should apply to the tax part, uh, because you can tax transactions, you could tax things, but I don't believe you could ever impose a tax on the fact that um, Adam White has not eaten his broccoli this morning and treat that as a taxable event, and that was what the Chief Justice wanted to say, and he tried to disguise it by saying it could be a set-off, but it didn't do for much. But if you get rid of the mandate, then there's no objection under the Commerce Clause to the statute as it's reconfigured. So I think the case for the statute after the mandate is gone is stronger, given current law, than it was otherwise. When I wrote an attack on it, my position was very modest. Uh, You have to undo Wicked and Filbert, and this is a good place to start. Uh, There were no justices who were biting on that, and if you want to talk about these kinds of super precedents, that case has now been around for uh, close to 80 years, and I think there's very little probability that it will ever be shifted one way or another. And so within the framework of that case, if feeding your own corn to your own cows uh, turns out to be a form of interstate commerce, regulating an industry which has tentacles in every part of American life uh, that crosses all 50 states has got to be an interstate commerce. It's a joke to say that it's not. And so I think the justices will never, ever do Uh, what it turned out that the Congress in 2017 was not prepared to do, which is to strike this thing down. Recent decisions on mandates, I have a famous phrase now from Chief Justice Rogers, we're using a scalpel, we're not using a bulldozer, and boy, oh boy, uh, it would be a genuine calamity to try and change this thing by judicial intervention without any idea of how the transitions would start to work. So I'm pretty confident that this is an easy case, and I think it's scaremongering on the part of the defend, uh, the Democrats to say, oh, this is going to be a nail-biter all the way along. Yeah, I, well, I definitely agree with that last part. On, on the case itself, I've always been a little baffled by it. The, the As you point out, the Congress in 2017 zeroed out the individual mandate, did not actually repeal the mandate, just zeroed out the tax. And now it, our advocates argue that the underlying, the original statute, the 2010 statute, is, is its remaining parts are unconstitutional because the tax that made it constitutional in the first place has been reduced to zero. If anything, if by their own theory, which I don't agree with, but by their own theory, if the the unconstitutional act, I, I guess, was the one that zeroed out the tax because the statute was constitutional before the 2017 act. And it's strange how the 2017 act could then make the 2010 act unconstitutional. I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. It seems just far too clever um, by, by half and by half. Well, I put it even simpler. You get rid of the mandate and assume that there was no mandate in the 2010 Act. The the whole thing is undoubtedly constitutional under existing jurisprudence. And what the 2017 Act did was bring us back to a 2010 Act, which is completely non-problematic. So why would you ever strike down an Act which you could have never challenged in its original form if it had not had the original mandate in it? So, I mean, I think this is all quite loopy. Uh, And remember, there was one other point. Bostock, uh, the dissent, and I think was quite right by Alito, amongst others, was, what are you telling 
telling us, Justice Gorsuch, that this thing did something that nobody alive thought it would do. Uh, many times people try to basically have the Title VII extend to dealing with transgender cases and with same-sex relationships, and it always failed. You can't do it by adjudication. Well, what's the source for the coup? Source for the gander? I don't think you can basically read this as anything close to saying that when they repealed this little section, what the majority of them would have agreed to is knocking out the whole act. This, to me, is such fantasy uh, that I'm embarrassed to have to make the argument. And by the way, remember, Adam, uh, they didn't basically strike down the act. They remanded it for discussions mm-hmm. of separability, which I think are a no-brainer. But, let me just add the but. But if the original 2010 act had created the individual mandate as a tax but had set the tax at zero from the beginning— would that have changed Robert's analysis back in the original NFIB case? Maybe. My answer is yes. So then, so, so then, but, then, but then, you know, any law professor can kind of spin out the hypothetical, right? Well, then the next is, well, what happens if Congress passes the first statute with a, with a meaningful tax and then a week later passes follow-up legislation that zeroes out the tax, right? That. Well, my view is, yeah, is that the, what happens is the mandate disappears and Justice Roberts says, okay, it is now constitutional mm-hmm. under the Commerce Clause, which is what I think is the right answer. I mean, I don't think we really yeah. want to be too no, we clever about it. We definitely this. don't. This it's, reminds me, the case this actually reminds me the most of was another Obamacare case. It was the one where my own adopted home state of the, the Commonwealth of Virginia had passed a statute uh, basically creating a, con- a, a a conflict with Obamacare, which had already been enacted, specifically for the purposes of ginning up state standing to then challenge the case, uh, to challenge Obamacare in federal court. And the Fourth Circuit wound up laughing this out of court, largely on the basis, if I remember correctly, of a great article by, by my friend uh, Kevin Walsh of the University of Richmond's faculty, who pointed out all the problems with this. Mm-hmm. But it's just, as a, as a judicial restraint guy myself, I just I hate seeing politicians trying to drag the courts in to do their work for them. Well, I mean, I'm a judicial activist guy of the highest order, and my view about this is they all have standing to sue, but they have a dead loser on their hands, and it ought to be mercifully put to death. Um, standing doesn't guarantee that you're right. In fact, one of the ironies in this case is once you decide that somebody, anybody has standing, all the other people really don't matter, and the majority of these opinions were devoted to the standing issues and not to the substantive issue, uh, which got a relevant relatively perfunctory treatment. But um, I would be utterly appalled if by judicial arrangement, this Supreme Court or any other Supreme Court uh, thought that you could undo a great statute like that without damage through a judicial decree in the face of the inability of the Republicans to get the first base on a uniform repeal of the statute in question. And by the way, even if you wanted to repeal the statute, you would have to put an enormous amount of time into the transitional provision. And as best I can tell, one of the real embarrassments that the Republicans have faced in this campaign is they don't have a situation to replace Obamacare, and they don't have a way in which to repair Obamacare. And so what happens is, is they're hostile to something and in favor of nothing. I regard the health care issue as a strong plus for the Democrats in this campaign because the Republicans have bollocks it so badly. Well, speaking of Democrats, uh, shall we move on to the next topic? Sure, why not? So again, we're taping this on Monday, October 19th. And just a few days ago, the New York Post reported out a story of uh, Hunter Biden's laptop falling into the possession of Rudy Giuliani, 
uh, through, if I, remember, I can't remember, some what was a repair shop or something. Um, and the, the, the laptop contained material that shows that, that by that Hunter Biden was cozying up his, his, his foreign, uh, consulting clients with his then vice president, father, Joe Biden. Now, in case you couldn't tell from my sneering introduction to this topic, I want to put around that entire description, the words allegedly. Um, but whatever I think of the underlying original story itself, the story's publication and its spread on social media triggered, I think, a much more fascinating debate, a much more important uh, real-world debate about the power of the large internet platform companies like Twitter and Facebook in the dissemination of information. And the fact that uh, Twitter immediately uh, rolled back people's sharing of the New York Post story and I can't remember if, if Facebook did as well, raise these increasingly urgent questions about the power of these companies in our day-to-day discourse. Richard, what was your sense of the whole situation? Well, let's take the two issues together or separately. The first question is the issue of what do we make of this particular story? And, and the very first thing we'd want to ask, seeing the rather odd way in which this thing pops up, is this a real thing or is this a fake? And essentially, I have no idea what the answer to that question is, but uh, listening to what you have said and the odd way in which this thing turns to appear, I mean, uh, somebody leaves it uh, loaded with dynamite at a shop for several years, they turn it to the FBI, the FBI does nothing. I mean, it sounds kind of squishy. So I would have a couple of questions. Uh, One is I would like to ask the FBI, did they get a copy of this particular thing, which the guy claims that he saved? And if they answered yes, I would like to know what they did with it. Then what I would want to do is I'd want to do a chain of custody and ask the fellows who produced it where they got it from. And then I would try to figure out who owned this thing. And I want to put the question to them, is this your computer or is this not? And by the way, if it is your computer, did you put this stuff on it at the time that you left it or was it put on afterwards? Because the chain of custody issues is very, very tricky, and it could well be. So what one would want to see would be a series of denial of its origin. The one thing I don't think you would want to see if you were a Democrat or a Republican is the notion is, yes, it turns out all of this stuff did take place in exactly the way in which these email correspondence reveal, but it really doesn't mean anything. Um, the simple way to put this stuff together is that if it's true, it's an impeachable offense because you're basically bribing the president through his, or the vice president and through his son. Um, So what happened? So what do I know? And I always say, and I'm going to say it on this particular occasion, I am a professor of law. I am not a professor of facts. I know what kinds of inquiries I'd want to make. Now, the second point that you made, I agree with. I mean, these are very serious issues. The Post puts this thing out. Its integrity is on the line because implicitly they're saying uh, we've checked for its bona fides. Now you'd like to see somebody attack it, but you don't see that. You see Twitter shut this thing down and shut down the entire Post stories. It doesn't seem to be covered in the New York Times or Washington Post, the New Yorker, all the standard liberal outpayment. I think that's basically a mistake. Their correct answer is, if they're right, is to say, 
say, we will cover this salacious story. And it heaps yet more discredit on the Trump campaign because Steve Bannon, right, um, and Judy Giuliani, two of the worst people you can imagine, are now peddling defamatory stuff against Joe Biden. And it's only out of the grace of God that he doesn't sue them for essentially alleging an impeachable offense when no wrong was committed. Uh, that's what one would like to see, some argument. But you don't see anything. So at the Biden town hall, was I guess it was with George Stephanopoulos, nothing is mentioned of this. You can't find it anywhere except essentially on Fox News and other right-wing sites. This is a very bad state of the world. Now, this should be a debate. I mean, you know, my view about it is I still can't think of a decent way on content to regulate uh, these various places. I, what I would urge somebody to do is to start up with a new Facebook, an alternative to Google, um, and turn it to Twitter because I think they become so unreliable and so difficult to regulate. We would like to see them lose market power by somebody who comes forward and says, you know what, we're not going to censor anybody. Uh, what we will do is combat false speech with more speech rather than simply suppressing it on the grounds that we know better what is true. And indeed, as somebody who is, uh, how do I say it, uh, on the minority position on large numbers of established issues, virtually everything I believe on large numbers of questions, the people who take my position even reputable people of impeccable credentials um, are constantly being shut down because there's some 24-year-old fact checker at one of these places who decide, well, he may be a professor of you know, epidemiology at Stanford or at Harvard, uh, but we know better on COVID-19. So I think that if this goes here, it's going to go everywhere else. And so I think in many ways you're right that the biggest story is not this rather improbable set of allegations, which might but probably are not true. The biggest story is why it is that these people People insist upon picking a fight by banning stuff. The cure for false speech is more speech, not the suppression of the speech that's stated, is I think what the standard market has been. I do also think, by the way, Adam, and maybe I'll ask you a question now. I think, in effect, the moment they have selected publication, they forfeit any immunity under, under the Communications Act, under Section 230, and at this particular point, they become a publisher, not just a transmitter, and they could be sued for defamation and for all sorts of other stuff. So I'm just curious as to how you think about that as well. Well, on the, on the statutory Section 230 issue, I just I, I don't agree with that. I think that the first part and the second part of the Section 230 protections, uh, they are separate. The, the initial provision that refers to publisher status is not, or let me put it the other way, the second provision, the liability protection, it's not explicitly tied to the aforementioned publisher status. And I think that that maybe that's what Congress intended, but it's not clear um, the, the protection stands on its own. And so if Congress really wants to make the editorial actions of these platforms the hinge point for whether they're a publisher and thus and, and in turn whether that publisher status makes a difference for their liability, I think it's going to take a, a, a statutory amendment. But of course, that's what's being debated now because of events like this. On the broader issue, I'll say... I mean, the, it's it's almost amusing the echoes of this this new story about the Biden laptops and the Steele dossier. It just, it just reminds me. This just seems to me like Steele dossier 2.0. And so, for me, the question is: when companies like the New York Post or companies like Twitter are confronted with information like this, what is the right way to go about this? And I see this as a failing on at least three fronts. 
I think that the New York, we'll start with the New York Post. It seems to me that their process for writing and publishing the story was a total breakdown for reasons the New York Times has already reported out on the fact that the, the person who did most of the reporting didn't want his name on the story, and the story was eventually eventually bylined by a much more junior person. So I think the New York Post fell short here. I think that the audience, and this is the great problem in all of this, before we get to the tech companies, is that Americans today, Republican or Democrat or, or neither of the above, have totally forfeited their own responsibilities to read things critically and actually think through the, the information that they're ingesting. We, we wield facts like weapons without ever actually looking at whether the fact is a fact. And I think that's one of the sadder facts of, uh, of our modern society and our political environment. But the big question, the one, the whole point of this conversation, the tech companies, this is something I've been thinking about for quite quite some time now. A few years ago, I published an essay in the New Atlantis, uh, a, a policy journal on technology and society, one of my all-time favorite pieces I've ever written, a little essay called Google.gov. And I was trying to offer an intellectual history of Google, its its relationship with the Obama, with President Obama from before he was ever even president, and really focusing on the way that, as I saw it, the founders of Google really saw the world and their role in the world was very similar to President o- the way Obama saw the world, the way a lot of behavioral economists see the world. And, 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 and it, I was warning in that article that companies like Google um, might start to try to nudge us towards – nudge us in certain directions based on their control of facts. Everybody knows Google's famous slogan, don't be evil. But their other founding slogan – is the more important one. Their original founding slogan was their mission that was that their mission is to organize the world's information, making it universally accessible and useful. And the key word there is information. And that was the point of my essay was that Google's most important power, and I think also Twitter and Facebook's, is deciding what counts as information and what doesn't, what counts as misinformation, what counts as disinformation. And it's that screening role that's unavoidable to the extent you're defining your mission in terms of information, you are assuming for yourself a responsibility to decide for your own purposes what counts as information and what doesn't. And I think the last three years since I wrote that, since I wrote that essay, it's really played out along the lines I've, I've warned. But I don't think that this is a duty that Google, Twitter, Facebook, and others can shy from. Um, just as you know, we expect newspapers and others to have high standards, we should expect these platform companies to have real standards. And the question then is, how do we ensure transparent, either transparency or competition or both? And I think that is the key, is that to the extent that there's a policy solution needed right now, I think it's one that promotes policy and that it, or sorry, that promotes transparency and that it promotes transparency for the sake of fostering competition. But I think that that's all correct, but it's not even harsh enough. Uh, one of the things that we know about these companies is they do not keep secret their own political predilections. Um, I don't think they're uniform across all these countries. If I had to rank them, I would probably say that Twitter is the most aggressively left-wing company. I think Google comes next, and then I would think that Facebook comes third. I don't think there's any of those three companies that you would put right of center. Well, it turns 
out that it's extremely difficult to do two things, uh, to be a moderator and a traffic cop, which is a kind of a neutral function, and to be an advocate. And so what happens is when you really are going to take the role of a moderator or a traffic cop, what you have to do is you have to stop taking positions as a strong advocate, which all of these companies do. And so what happens is it's not just a question of them getting out salacious stuff. All of the critics say, look, are you willing to show all sorts of stories about violence which takes place through some organization like, say, Black Lives Matter or Anne Patel. And then when it comes to anything that somebody else on the other side does, what you said is, well, we looked at line four of their particular argument that we don't think that the assertion there was made uh, supported by the allegations that are in the sexes that they, to which they cite. So they're just completely different standards on this. And so, you know, for example, uh, my friend Scott Atlas, uh, he took a very controversial position on mass, may have been in politics for him to do so in the current climate, but it is utterly inexcusable for the Twitter people to say, we're not going to publish this thing. And when, if you go back and you read it, it's connected to all sorts of links which tend to support his position, uh, which of course are always to be subject to disputation. And, and that's the kind of thing that just sends you up the wall because it's not just a question of intervening, it's a question of intervening with a program. And that's exactly what these companies do. So my urging to everybody is to try to find alternative searches and sources. So I put, I don't know, DuckDuckGo is now on my computer. And I can actually look to there. And it's amazing when I want to find out things about a controversial event like COVID or the George Floyd killing, you run it through the two different um, search engines. And in one case, you come up with original doctrines that are critical of the received wisdom. And in the other case, you never find them in their original form. You always find them embedded in something which actually shows the criticism to the position in question. And I think that that is an extremely bad thing to say. As I've indicated to you before, uh, I'm really depressed about this. I don't see any legal solution whereby you have government censors over private censuses working. It's also a case, even if you broke Google in two and both of them did the same thing or did somewhat different things independently, um, you're not going to be able to solve this problem by the anti-slush solution. So the only thing you could do is what I'm trying to do now is to try to hammer them on reputation and, and to let them understand that some of us are out there watching this. Uh, some of us are upset in the abstract uh, because we don't like to see it happen to others. And some of us are more concretely. I don't like seeing this happen because it turns out many of the positions that are censored are positions that I'm prepared to defend in other kinds of forums. And I don't want to have to think whenever I want to defend them that I've got two enemies to fight. One of them is my opponents on the other side, and the other is this so-called neutral arbiter, which always finds my friends guilty of some massive indiscretion and statements on the other side as being perfectly appropriate. So uh, to me, it is a, an issue which has some real emotional bite. And there's no question during this presidential campaign uh, the pressure on these fronts has really intensified, and I am at my wit's end to know what to do about it, except to make this public lament. Well, for listeners who want to see what the stakes are, I'd encourage them to look at a recent New York Times essay. It's in the New York Times Magazine. It's by Emily Bazelon, and it's titled uh, uh, "Free." The free. It's it's titled "The First Amendment in Our Age of Disinformation," and it really does, I think, reflect the burgeoning ethos especially among, among law professors um, from, from, from the center to the left who increasingly want to redefine uh, the First Amendment's protection of free speech in terms of a certain kind of speech that, uh, that in, in, in their view, 
uh, does not include what they see to be disinformation and misinformation. And again, I want to be very clear here. I think one of the great problems is that Americans themselves simply refuse to take seriously the the responsibilities of being an informed and not misinformed or di- or willfully disinformed citizen. I, I think that the, one of the reasons why this problem is so so palpable today, the problem of the, of the tech companies, is because we just grab whatever looks like a fact as long as it supports our arguments and nobody takes facts actually seriously. And so we do need to take facts seriously, but the solution is not to just delegate this all to a couple of companies who will then tell us what the facts are. Moynihan had that famous line, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. Uh, I've always, and he, he, I think he used that line in a, in a Washington Post op-ed about social security policy. I went back and I was rereading that op-ed just the other day. In fact, it's here it is on my computer screen, uh, on my desktop, I mean, January 18th, 1983, about the Social Security commissions that, that uh, Greenspan uh, shared. You're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. Well, then whose facts am I entitled to? Am I entitled to choose at all? Or am I supposed to accept the facts that somebody else has given me? And who's going to, con- who's going to establish the fact of who's the best fact giver? Um, anyway, look, a couple of observations. I think is a very, very heavy burden before you take anything down. I think almost never when you have a scholarly debate, you take anything down before you start to speak to the people who published it and ask them for their opinions and go to some independent outsiders or experts in the area who say whether or not this thing is just totally, utterly beyond the pale. And I, I didn't read, I could never finish a New York Times article, but I did read some of it. I can't recall that Emily Baslin talked to any person who was concerned about this issue from the right of center. As I recall, every one of the critics that she had of these various companies were critics from the left who kind of indicated that their positions had not been fully vindicated by the ways in which organizations like Facebook had gone. And so uh, if I'm wrong about this, well, I'd be happy to be corrected, but I'm not wrong about this. And then the problem is, is the New York Times a source of information, disinformation, which in many cases I think is. I mean, I've read so many stories by them, which I think are just flat out wrong. And what makes me very suspicious, with the exception of a couple of people, Brett Stevens and Adam Puttack, um, everybody else is just absolutely monochromatic in what it is that they start to say. And you can't be credible as a newspaper in the public record if 99.4% of your people essentially come from the same side of the political spectrum. So I don't think it's just the tech companies, Adam, that give us this problem. I think it's the news story. And in contrast, the Wall Street Journal is much more willing to be critical of Trump uh, than the New York Times is willing to be uh, complimentary to him on any sub-issue. So I think the problem is even deeper than the uh, tech companies, and I think it really can affect elections and so forth. Uh, And so I think that the whole state of the media in this country has gone really way downhill. And as I said, I'm powerless to to come up with something that I think is a respectable remedy, which is remotely equal uh, to the dangerous problems that we face today. Well, then I guess the problem within those companies is that their employees don't experience enough uh, disagreements. But our listeners do, uh, because this ends another episode of Reasonable Disagreements. Richard, who knows what we'll be talking about two weeks from now, the way that the future moves. But I'm looking forward to our conversation all the same. Is that the before or after the election? That's the Monday before the election, right? 
It will be election eve. Well, we may do uh, it. We may do it on Wednesday, right? Maybe that might be a better idea. Okay. Uh, but I'll look forward to it. Thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.